Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into real cases. The content may be triggering or inappropriate for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And I'm Amber. We have another special listener pick. We've been trying to get through our listener picks because when you are a Patreon of ours, which is a subscribing member and you get a lot of extra content each month for that, check out crimecuriouspatreon.com for more information on that. And you request a case, it takes priority. So we have been covering our listener picks lately, but we'll get back to themes. We've had a couple of people tell us that they they like our themes. So don't worry. We'll get back to that. It's just when a listener wants to hear a case, man, we try. The world stops. Yeah. We try to bring the people what they want. Absolutely. So, So for today's case, we have listener Donnie to thank, but also Another listener, Jessica, to thank. Oh, is this a double request case? Yep, this one's heavily requested. Interestingly enough, I think they both requested it from opposite ends of the spectrum because it's another controversial case. It's going to be a juicy one. It is, and you know how I love to cover me some controversy. Yes, yes. That was kind of hard to say, actually. Um, (laughs) You tried. It's okay. I really did. There was too many S's connected there. As we... Like to do here, I'm going to give you research from both sides of the case and leave it up to you to make a decision just like we did with the Willingham case. This is the case of Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate. I know when Donnie originally suggested it, he was like, hmm, 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 look what this bitch did. Mm. So I'm hoping we will enlighten him a little bit with some new information and then when Jessica requested it she was like oh my gosh can you believe that people are accusing her of this mm, oh yeah okay I know you don't know much about this case I, don't. I think that some die hard true crime fans are going to be like oh, okay I've heard this time and time again but I do think that I'm going to be presenting it a lot different from the typical and then I get to give my meaningless opinion first. Yes. Yes, Or anybody do. else does. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm excited about that. Uh, it's always good and educated, though. It comes from a place of education. Okay. Thank you. So. You're right. I appreciate your opinion. One of the sources, I used several for this, guys, and you know they're in the show notes, but when I first set out to research this case, I was like, yeah, I'll watch Natural Born Killers. No, no. Not so much. Don't watch Natural Born Killers. Loosely based is a loose term. That's all I had for this case was that movie. Not Like, oh, the movie's about the case. Not at all accurate. And at the end, actually, in the end, I will tell you all of the different Hollywood things, songs, all kinds of stuff that have stemmed from this because it became such a huge deal. Interesting. In a very unfair way. Can we still like Woody Harrelson, though? Yeah, we gotta I love, do him some love Woody. me some Woody. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> okay, yeah. Of course. We'll forgive him for doing an inaccurate movie. We, we will. I mean, he was paid well. Who can blame the yeah. guy? The book that I compel you guys to read, especially if you're on the fence in any way, because you can research this case 
And when you research this case, you're going to get a lot of just a general, they went on a killing spree Mm -hmm. type of information. But if you really want a deep dive, yes, the intimate details of what Carol Ann went through, pick up a copy of The 13th Victim by Linda Basiti and John Stevens. I might have to read this depending on my it's conclusion. An, it's an today. easy read, 200 and some pages, compelling and fact-based. Not only that, but every fact that is brought is then referenced. So you can cross-check, which I did, uh, to make sure that this wasn't just a book that was written trying to change people's mind. Mm-hmm. And it's so it's not, all factual. Yes, that you can you can gain access to. So... So here we go. I'm going to give you a little bit of a different perspective All today. Right. I'm jumping on the saddle now. The rampage of Charles Starkweather and what is commonly thought of as the rampage of Star- Charles Starkweather and Caroline Fugate has left scars across the state of Nebraska, and many will never find it in their hearts to look at other circumstances and believe that Carol Ann was a victim herself. And for that, I do understand. Many cover it by telling a very compelling story that's reminiscent of Bonnie and Clyde. But I am not going to do that. But what a lot of people don't understand is that Carol Ann does not speak to the media. She does not do interviews. And it's through the authors of this book that I mentioned, The 12th Victim, that she gave a very rare intimate interview oh, with. wow. So this and was one of her only times she actually told yes. her side? Yep. And the the reason, well, you'll understand, I think, as we go on more as to why that is, but that leaves both Hollywood, the regular, you know, newspapers, different media outlets to draw their own conclusions when they're not hearing it firsthand. Yeah. So I want y'all to hang on to that little nugget. This case begins in Lincoln, Nebraska, where Carol Ann Fugate was born on July 30th, 1943, to her parents, Velda and William Fugate. Now, Carol has a sister that's three years older than her. Her name's Barbara. Carol's father was a lovely person when he was sober. Uh. Yeah. But when he was drunk, not so much. But Velda made sure that the girls... I love the name Velda, by it the is, way. Can we just it's recognize... It's a saucy name. I like Velda. it. Velda made sure... She was a very appropriate mother. And she made sure that her girls never saw the kind of man that their father was drunk. Mm. Because when William would come home, she would put the girls in the closet and tell them to stay there until she said so. Okay. Now, they would hear them argue and whatnot... But what what Velda was doing was she would evaluate if William was drunk or sober. If he was sober, she'd let the girls out right away. They'd have a normal family night. If he was drunk, she would keep them in there until he passed out. Interesting. Mm -hmm. We all have our ways of coping, We all do, yeah. Mm -hmm. And remember, she was born in 1943. This is a different time. Much different time. For sure. They were unfortunately evicted from a lot of places because William was not a provider for his family. And of course, they were incredibly poor. He had never spoke to Velda about his own parents or family, and she didn't know any of them. And she thought that was really strange because Velda actually lived like very close within the same neighborhood as her mother and sisters. Like she, she was very close with her family. And as I said earlier, she was an amazing mother. She was always there for the girls when they woke up, when they came home from school, when they went to bed. She read to them, sang to them. And basically what they lacked in money, 
she made up for in love and affection. Aw. Yeah. She sounds amazing. Yes. She and she absolutely is. That's not going to change throughout the whole story case. Good. I, I hate calling it a story. I mean, it's her life story, it but is, it's, yeah. you know. As I said, all of her family lived, Velda's family lived in Lincoln, Nebraska as well. So they're very close with their grandma, Patsy, and Aunt Lola. What they did is they ended up moving into a tenement house with Grandma Patsy and Aunt Lola's family after one of their many evictions. Now, what I picture for a tenement house, and forgive me, I was born in the 80s, not the 40s, but I'm picturing... Like today in our hometown, we have big houses that are broke up into units. Yeah, yeah. And so that's kind of what I was, what I'm picturing for a tenement house. Because they're all close by, but they have their own space. Gotcha. At this time, Carol Ann is eight years old and she's in the second grade, which she had failed first grade because they had moved five times in two years. So school was did not come easy to her. And Velda Fugate was a devout Christian woman And it was those beliefs that had made her hold on so long to a man that could not provide. Um, Uh, He was abusive and he drank away the household money. I was, I was going to ask if he was abusive and that was part of the closet thing. Yes. They'd have to go into the closet. Yes. They didn't go. I couldn't find a lot of intimate detail through any of the sources that would give specifics of that. But I think that that was the fear of them witnessing never any, report of him being abusive to the girls gotcha only to Velda okay there is this cute story and I just am telling you this to give you kind of a little bit of a picture of who Carol Ann was as a small child because when she's eight she uh her sister Barbara's on the other side of the street and calls out to her and was like look Aunt Lola let me wear makeup look I have lipstick on so of course Carol Ann is all excited she's gonna run right across the street Wants to see what this lipstick's about. And, of course, probably wants some. Yeah, for herself. Well, she gets hit by a truck. Oh, my gosh. gosh. I didn't see it going this way. Sorry, I kind of hit you with that (laughs) one. Bam. Um, So in the book, it says she, she gets hit by this truck and she opens her eyes and there's the exhaust of the truck above her. Oh, my goodness. And the the man comes out and was like, little girl, don't move, don't move. She gets out from underneath the truck and I quote, yells, you dirty goddamn son of a bitch, you run to me over. (laughs) Feisty. Yes, that is a moment, you know. And she did have some bruising and she was very sore, but otherwise she was completely fine. Well, Velda warned her that at church that Sunday, she would probably not get cookies and milk because, in Bible school because the pastor in the small town had likely, by now, heard of her curse words. Oh, because of the language. Yes. Instead, she comes home with a big smile on her face and informs her mother that, in fact, she got extra cookies because she was an example of how you can get run over by a truck and still live by the grace of God. <laughs> I love that the pastor took it there. Like, I'm just going to. That's good. It was warranted. You know, what she said, not ideal. Right. But. But she got hit. Yeah. Let's cut her a break. She got hit by a truck. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was probably a Model T. You just don't know. (laughs) It probably was. I mean, she survived, so it couldn't have been going incredibly fast. Right. At the time. And they were in town, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Speed limits are, are lower but still i mean let's not take away from the fact that this little girl got hit by a damn truck and got up to say you 
dirty goddamn <laughs> cinema bitch. You run to me over. I love the grammar. Yes. So the tenement house where the family lived with Grandma Patsy and Aunt Lola was the last house that they lived together as the Fugate family because one day William Fugate came home drunk as a skunk and began choking Velda. The girls could hear they were in the closet, but they could hear that this fight sounded different. There's some escalation. So they came out. Okay. They came out of the closet. They actually were like yelling at him to let go of their mom. They grabbed knives from the butcher block, began chasing William around, telling him to get away from their mother. Oh, wow. These are some feisty girls, strong girls she's raising. And in walks Grandma Patsy onto this scene. Can you imagine it? (laughs) The girls are running around with knives knives and screaming at their dad who's choking their mother. Wow. Yes. Yep. So that's the last straw. Good, yep. good. Velda had had enough, kicked William Fugate out. I mean, it, it, it was coming. I, I told provide. Right. He's a drinking, beating her. That's right. Her. Yeah, he's got to go. Yep. Now Grandma Patsy's involved yep. and is like, he's got to go. Mm-hmm. Nay, nay. Mm-hmm. You shan't Bye, be doing William. this to my daughter. <laughs> Pack your bags. Which he does. A week later, he shows up with another woman, classy. <laughs> yeah. And grabs the last of his items, which they the family didn't have a whole lot, and left. And it would be a really long time before the girls would see him again. So he's out of the picture. The three of them got on wonderfully. Velda got a job. You know, and that is not my typical writing style, so I wonder what compelled me to write it like that. Wonderfully. I feel like there was some old school spirit. I think you were in it. Yeah. You were in the story. The three of them got on wonderfully. Velda got a job, and Barb took a babysitting job, and they were all doing great. I like the accent that you took on. I have on. no idea where that yeah. came from either. It was horrible, and any of our UK listeners, and I know we've got a lot of them, are like, oh, <laughs> what is that? honey. <laughs> no. No, I think you were so into it. It's like you were there. I I think so. And the language came out. But remember, this is Lincoln, Nebra- Lincoln Nebraska. That's not how they were talking. But my writing style just all of a sudden was like, the three of them got on wonderfully. Wonderfully. Anyway, Velda now meets a man named Marion Bartlett. He was 20 years her senior, but that didn't matter. He loved Velda's daughters like his own, never once putting the word step in front of the word daughters. Oh, very nice. When he spoke to them, or spoke about them. Age is merely a number. Agreed. So Marion was a provider. The girls no longer had to worry about coming home from school and seeing their things packed in boxes. That's got to be such a relief. Yes. It sounds like as soon as he got out of the picture, she's like, it was. Right. It was going well. It mm-hmm. was. As a matter of fact, when he came with that, when William came to pick up the rest of his stuff with that woman, it was around Christmas time. And they had had a Christmas tree up for the first time and were making Christmas, uh, their own Christmas decorations for the tree when he just suddenly walked through the door. Oh, so they and were like got super happy. Yes, yes. So they get, now Now she's with Marion Bartlett, Velda is. They have a Christmas tree. They have gifts under the tree. Um, they were very close with one another and, and happy. And she marries Marion. I don't know the time frame. It's not really even important to the story, but of, you know, how long after William was kicked out that she married Marion. They were a very happy, loving, normal family. Soon comes baby sister, B. 
Betty Jean. Oh. Mm-hmm. Now, Carol Ann and Barbara adored Betty Jean and helped care for her when their mother needed help. They helped teach her how to crawl, how to walk, how to talk. They were just there Little being... mother hens. Yeah, and there's a significant age difference, you know, between them. And so they're old enough to help, especially yeah. Barbara, who's three years older than Carol Ann. As a matter of fact, the girls were such excellent caregivers. I think I mentioned earlier that shortly after William moved out, Barb took up a baby babysitting job, and they were doing really well. Well, she was caring for five kids down the street, which Carol Ann would help her with too. That's a lot of tiny humans to be caring for. The family was loved in the community. The girls had friends and were popular in school. Something that would not have even been possible with with William because they'd moved around so much they couldn't really make real friends. So Barbara is introduced to a man named Charlie Starkweather through her, but I know you're like, wait, this name is familiar. Starkweather, you say? Yep. And it's through her best friend who, not to be confu- make things confusing, guys, but Barbara's best friend is also named Barbara. Her, the Barbs. The Barbs. <laughs> yes. They're walking around town as the, the Barbs. Barbs. But this is Barbara Griggs. So I'm going to refer to her as Griggs just to make things easier because... It's a lot of Barbaras going is. on. There's, there's too many Barbs yeah, and yeah. a story can't have too many Barbs. You're right. Griggs is like, hey... I want to introduce you to a guy named Charlie Starkweather because I'm dating his older brother, Rodney. Wouldn't you know it? Yeah. So there's Barbara Griggs and Rodney Starkweather. They're a couple. And she's like, as all best friends are, wouldn't it be awesome if your brother dated my best friend? Best friend goals. Yes. I I remember having conversations with my best friends like, Oh my God, we could date brothers. Absolutely. Or best friends. Yes. I mean, either one. So for a short while, that's what happens. The two Barbs are Got dating. the bros. Yep, are dating the bros, Charles and Rodney Starkweather. Until one day, Charlie has Barb meet his best friend, Bob Von Bush. Oh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I like that name. I do. I, he I like is it. a count somewhere. Yeah, I'm just sure. right. Is such a count. Yes. yes. Charlie is like, hey, bro, meet my girlfriend, Barb. You know, Barb Fugate. Bob Von Bush was like, oh, damn. Oh. I love me some Barbara Fugate. Oh, really? So sparks yes. were just Instant. flying. Instantly. Yes. Well, Barb and Bob literally fell in love at first sight. At that moment. That moment, the universe clicked into place. And just like that, Redheaded Charles Starkweather. He was out. Is out. He's also awkward, so it's not like they're like Barb's like meh. I was really only doing settled because my friend, my friend, (laughs) right, is dating your brother. Yeah, that's what was going on. I see. Barb and Bob did feel really bad that they had hit it off so well, especially since Bob is best friends with Charlie. Right, that would make for an awkward situation a little bit. Yeah. So Barbara Fugate is like, listen, I have a younger sister, Carol Ann. Wow. Uh-huh. And maybe you would hit it off. and With it would, her. Yeah. And just trying to take the sting off from the fact that his best friend just, just stole, stole his, his girl. Mm-hmm. All right? Now, here's the thing. Bob was like, uh, Barbara, I'm not so sure about this because Charles is 18 and Carol Ann is 13. Oh. So Bob had some uh some Reservation. The Count some, Von the Bush. Count. The count is has some good instinct. Yes, he's like maybe she's a little too young. Yes. Now remember, this is 1956. 
at this time. And Carol Ann was accustomed to hanging out with older kids because her and Barb were are very, very close. Mm-hmm. And she's always just hanging out with Barb and Barb's friends. Velda did allow Carol Ann, their mom, Velda, did allow Carol Ann to see Charles Starkweather only while double dating with Barb and Bob. So that's what they do. Okay. All right. The foursome went everywhere together. Now, Charles was smitten with Carol Ann from the beginning. He fell in love with her blue eyes, and he also fell in love with the way that she adored him because she's 13, mm-hmm. gobbling up the attention that she's getting from an older oh, boy. Oh, yeah, older guy. I'm sure that was And the appealing. way that it raised her status in the middle school, let's just talk about that. Oh, I bet. Think about that for a second. Put yourself, I want you all to step into the DeLorean and go back to your teenage self Or if you're a teenager listening to this, you can probably relate to what it's like to be 13. You're awkward. You're in middle school. You don't really know. You're not Mm. you're not a kid anymore, but you're not an adult and you want to be one so damn bad. I had really bad bangs and a vest I wore all the time. It was a it was a dark period. Corduroy pants. Mm. Yeah, I had some of those too. Were we thinking? I blame InSync. I had a like a colic. Where I couldn't have the full bang, so they would just like part. Yeah, it was horrible. Yeah, I think we all had horrible. That. It was the pubescent <laughs> colic. Colic. Yeah. yeah, we. I mean, you're preaching to the choir here, sister. It's horrible. It my lip, my lip gloss had glitter in it. For fuck's sake. Mm-hmm. What? Oh, and let's not forget the time that one of my friends was like, "I'll trim your bangs." No. Oh my god, it was horrible. Yeah. I had a bob with bangs. <laughs> Yep. Yep. So, so if you want more childhood traumas, I will <laughs> give you more later. You're to give us more. Yes. yes exactly. <laughs> anyway. But yeah, you're awkward. So like, get there. Everyone get there in your mind because I want you to think about like, huh, just remember that. Mm-hmm. Just remember what it's like to be a 13-year-old girl. And or, then you're like, oh, what? dang, Barb's dating an 18-year-old. No. Carol Ann. Or Carol Ann. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Carol Ann's Carol-Ann. hanging out with these old, you know, her older sister, Barb, the Count Von Bush. And in his, you know, and Rod Charles. She's got an 18-year-old man. She does. A count. Okay. And an older sister. I mean, does it get any better? Her life is fantastic. Right. Oh. I have times changed. Because mm-hmm. I know the report I would be making. Right. With a 13-year-old and an 18-year-old yes. dating. Yep, but, exactly. But this is it's a different much time. different. It's, yep. it's 1956. And I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. No, but it's just, it's the facts of it. But that is something that is often scrutinized here, both towards Velda and towards Carol Ann. Even the Count was like, hey guys, yeah, maybe this, this is a bad this idea. This is weird. But the important caveat here is that it was under the pretense of, sure, you guys can see each other. Super. Because you're going to be chaperoned, which was very normal also in that time. Chaperoning, Mm -hmm. you know, dating while being chaperoned. So it's like I'm not okay with you necessarily like full on dating, but you can like hang out. You can companionize with each other. Is that a word? We're making it it a word. Yeah. For sure. They're, They're companions under the supervision of older and other people. So for Carol Ann, she is like no other people in my class have older boyfriends paying attention to them. But also, like, she just thought it was really cool because he, they would go out and he would teach her how to drive his truck. He had a stick. 
you know? Mm -hmm. And typically this is where I would insert some horrible, immature 12 year old boy joke about her driving his stick. But But I'm not going to do that because I think too many people have already went there for Carol Ann and that's not what this is. This was wholesome, like learning how to fall in love. They're in love. Dating-ish. Yeah. They're they're falling for each other. So I'm like, yeah, yeah. It's hard. I know. Where we're at today, it feels <laughs> icky coming out of our vo- mouths. I know. But Every time I want to be like, oh, cool. Exactly. Heave, a little heave. It doesn't taste right. <laughs> but we've just got to remember where we're at. I'm, I want to give you some background on Charles Starkweather for a moment. He was also born in Lincoln, Nebraska. Lincoln, Nebraska. He shares a birthday with my sister. I always knew there was something a little off about her. <laughs> So many things make sense now, don't right. they? No. <laughs> oh, and you know what? If she doesn't listen, she'll never know. And that's she won't. That's going to be her punishment. Now we'll know if right. she does. Exactly. Testing, testing. <laughs> so anyway, November 24th, 1938, he was born to his parents, Guy and Helen Starkweather. They had seven children total, and Charles was the third child. I will note that actually the Starkweathers came from a strong stock of military men who fought in the Revolutionary War, Civil War, and even have monuments made after them. There is no smudges in their ancestry of insanity or blatant disregard for the law. I just feel for their last name we should throw that out there because they're actually very highly respected in our history. Noted. Charlie's early years were happy. His parents were not rich, but he had his needs met. Their father, Guy, was attentive and taught the kids all kinds of things from what animals were in the zoo to how to build a fire from scratch while camping. He was described as being a jack-of-all-trades, and he passed that on to, tried to pass that on to his children. He had a very loving, typical family life. Nice. Yeah. Around the age of eight or nine, teachers began flagging Charles as being slightly cognitively impaired. Uh, He struggled with his speech. He had a speech impediment, and he had bowed legs. So he's a redhead. He's small for his age. Mm -hmm. Um, Bowed legs, speech impediment. So he's got some obstacles. He does, and this causes him to become the subject of some school bullying. Now, according to James Reinhardt, a renowned criminologist in his book, The Murderous Trail of Charles Starkweather, and he spent a lot of time interviewing Starkweather after the fact. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Spent a lot of time with him. Charles had a secret thirst for guns, for death, and for power, even from his early years that he never shared with anyone. Interesting. Charles had also told grandiose recollections of severe bullying right from the first day of school. So in Charles' perspective, it was immediate. Right, right from the first day of school. And it was his, and you can read about it in the book, but it is, his recollection is so severe that Reinhardt's like, sorry, I don't believe you. This is grossly exaggerated as a way to justify your behavior and set the tone for his defensiveness. Like this, is, this happened because of these horrible Yep, and every, everything that he does, he tries to claim that he is on the defensive, that this was self-defense. Everything from the massacre we're going to hear about in just a little while to anything bad in his childhood that he did, like his love, love of physically fighting people, Mm. is he claims he wasn't the aggressor, he was defending himself. Mm. When actually he would walk miles to pick a fight. If it meant that he could go fight and beat someone up and be in a physical fight, 
he's walking it. He's doing it. But he wants to claim it's all because he was bullied and because he had to defend himself. And that's not true. He was the aggressor. He was seeking these behaviors, seeking this out and causing the chaos and then trying to to justify. Well, I was bullied and I went. okay. Yep. And so in all of his his recollections of even his first day of school, the author's like, no, not so much that. That sounds extremely exaggerated. Yeah. More than likely, kids teased him about his bowed legs and his speech impediment. I, I'm not denying that he wasn't the target of bullying at some point, but to the degree that he describes in the book, um, an adult would have intervened. Okay. It was just too exaggerated. And Starkweather, as Starkweather grew up, he not only had a love of guns, but he began seeing what he described as death in his dreams outside his window, and in his bedroom. He didn't tell anybody about this, but did tell the criminologist who wrote the book about it later, saying that he knew that death was coming for him. And so that would cause him to even, like, try to help it along sometimes. Like, once he was driving, he would play chicken with other cars and always win because it's like he didn't care if he died because he knew... Death's wow. been waiting for him. Interesting. Mm-hmm. In his mind, it, death was inevitable, so he had nothing to lose, which is a dangerous combination that young. Yeah, absolutely. Um, by 16, he dropped out of school and worked at the Western Union newspaper, and he trained others frequently who would eventually get promoted as they finished school and college, and he stayed at the same wage and the same level, which caused serious resentment for him. And his worldview that because he was poor and had bowed legs and a speech impairment, he was considered lesser than and looked upon. For him, that's why he never got promoted. Could have had something to do with his bad attitude and his behaviors, but to him it was, nope, it's because I didn't graduate high school, even though I'm training all these people, Mm -hmm. and it's because of my bowed legs and my speech impediment. Now, Charles' brother Rodney did admit to Barbara once that Charles had severely low self-esteem, and one time when they were hunting together, Charles had a semi-automatic rifle that he could not stop shooting, and it seemed to him, to Rodney, that he went a bit crazy with the power that he felt when he was watching him do this when they were hunting. They hunted a lot together. He really loved guns and knives. So he got the taste and he was like, yeah. And Rodney, even then, you know, when when Rodney, he was just like, and remember, Rodney is with Barbara Griggs. So this came out, this comes out later, not Barbara the sister. Barbara the sister is with Bob. The friend. Yeah, this is the friend, Barbara Griggs. Uh, Caroline's best friend, Barbara Griggs. Rodney was like, oh, my brother. Uh, He was like drunk on the power that he got from shooting his guns. Mm -hmm. So now back to Caroline and the Starkweather's relationship. It should be noted that Marion Bartlett, her stepfather, Caroline's stepfather, did not approve of Charles. And he knew that he was a hoodlum. He would come to his house all cut up and bruised up. Velda would nurse him back, and he and Marion knew that that meant that he was fighting with no goods. Okay, so Marion was like, I've got my eye on you, yes. son. Yes, they did not get along because he did not. I mean, this is his house. Like, you're not going to come into my house and be a little shit. Yeah. You know, so he he put Charles in his place several times. Apparently, back then, there was a leather jacket gang and a jean jacket gang. Oh. I totally would have belonged to the jean jacket gang. <laughs> yep, me too. I still do. I have like Same. four of them upstairs in my closet. He, Charles was a part of the leather jacket oh, gang. Oh, that, was that like the bad boy? 
I'm thinking so because he is referred to a lot in sources as like a James Dean type. I'm picturing like the comb, you know, like exactly the hair. It's his he he wore that flipping up that color. That was yeah. his idol. That okay. was the look that he was going for. Not yep. nearly as attractive, but that's the look that he's going for. And a lot of stuff you'll read, they'll say like he was a really good looking guy. Not my taste, but to each your own. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it's because I already know what he did as to why I don't find him attractive. But I'm not sure. Very James Dean. I mean, all I have is Woody Harrelson to go by, so that's like what I'm picturing. Right. There you go. That's closer. <laughs> that's fine. But except Woody's far too tall because Starkweather is 5'5". Five five. Oh. I knew I knew you were going to cringe. He's a little guy. He is. Okay, I didn't he know is. that. He's just. He's a he's little. A big man. A little, little or, guy. I mean, a little man with some big problems. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. This is like a little peewee. It is. Almost. It is very much a lot like a little peewee, except he didn't have an abusive childhood. I okay. mean, peewee's childhood was, was horrible. Fucked. Yeah, it no. was bad. He doesn't have that. He's literally just built like him. Starkweather knew that Marion did not like him or approve of him seeing Carol Ann, and that caused tension. Then at 16, Barb, Mar- Carol Ann's sister, Barb, married Bob Von Bush. Mm. So she's a countess. Oh, yes, she is. (laughs) They married on Valentine's Day in 1957. Very sweet. Yeah. They had to get married in Iowa because they were too young to marry in Nebraska. And this was also something that Marion did not approve of. Stepdad Marion was like, um, really? Marion's over here like, what's with these girls? Seriously. I'm raising you better than this. But Velda was happy for her daughter because... Barb reassured them both that Bob Von Bush was a good man and made her happy. And by all accounts, that was true. My mm-hmm. my grandma got married at 16. So did my parents. So They're still it was together. a thing. It was. Yep. Shortly after the two were, were of course, expecting a baby. As that's what happens. Those things happened, so I'm told. <laughs> and everyone was thrilled. Okay. Carol Ann is going to be an aunt. Velda's going to be our grandmother. They're all so close and and happy. Carol Ann took over the babysitting job of the five kids for Barb, uh, which she's she's 13, so that's a lot of responsibility, but she handled it beautifully. Every night from four to nine on the weekends, she watched, uh, on the weeknights, excuse me, she watched the kids. They ranged in age from six months to eight years old. And she literally did it all. She cooked dinner. She did the diapers, the bottles, rocked babies to sleep, gave them baths, put them to bed. I'm impressed. I mean, yes, 13, and here she is. I couldn't do that now. And I know, not with five kids. No. I say that like it's so many I have freaking four. Like what? (laughs) I love how I'm like, five children? When you count my husband, I am raising five kids. True, so, true. Like, yeah, you, you've been through it. Carolyn, I feel you, honey. I would be in fetal position in the corner. Yeah, she, she, but here she is killing it, you know? And when she wasn't working, Charlie was at her house. It's important to note that the two did not hang out alone still. All right? They were they're still chaperoned by either Barb and Bob or Marion and Velda. They'd go hunting together on a nearby farmer's property, August Mayer who gave them permission to hunt. Carolyn had actually not met him, just was like, oh, yeah, this old man, August Mayer, lets us hunt there. So they did a lot of those things, still still supervised. Bob Von Bush is actually quoted saying that the most, he knows that the most that these two had done was make out with tongue and that Charles was clumsy 
And he didn't really know his way around, even for a boy of 18, because of his low self-esteem. And apparently it was something that Charles talked about with his best friend, Bob Von Bush, a lot. I see. And the reason I say that is just because the newspapers at the time that I was reading really, really tried to demonize Carol Ann because for 19, the 1950s, she's a floozy. She was having premarital sex. And that is just not true. I see. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they actually weren't no. essentially. As a matter of fact, we'll find out later, Starkweather was impotent. Oh. Another reason for his low self-esteem and his little man big problems. So he was short, yes. limp. Yes. Yes. He's bowed, he's not... You forgot the bowed legs. Yeah. How could I forget the bowed legs? I'm not laughing at him. No. I'm, it's just, you know. He's just like, got a lot of This is lot. why he's got a chip on his shoulder. Bowed he, legs, limp dick. That's why he's always getting in these fights trying to prove himself. Yeah, he's got a lot going on. He's he short needed some counseling. For a, a man. He did. He, he did. Need, this is a classic case of why mental health is so important. Yes. Especially yep. when he started to see death. It's kind of like, yep. mm, we might need to talk to somebody for about sure. that. Yep. Um, Starkweather did not. It's interesting that you say that. Thank you for segueing for me because. You're welcome. I, next, got you. I got you. My next sentence is Starkweather did not share with Carol Ann how death visited him. How he would sometimes picture dead people laying at his feet. Did you see how I picked that out? I'm I like, know. Oh, that's a red flag. Brilliant. <laughs> or put this over here in the red flag flag category all all of that information where he's like yeah i didn't tell carol about death visiting me and about how i would picture dead people at my feet that came out during the interviews that he does later he never confessed Mm -hmm. any of that at Mm -hmm. the time no but carol ann did begin to worry about charlie that's how who she called him charlie I mean, um, the picture you've painted of him is not a good for one. Sure. So. I, I would be worried, too. He was he was starting to tell her stories about being a sheriff in Texas and catching and killing Indians. Now, at first, she thought that he was just telling stories to make her giggle. And then, which, by the way, poor taste, giggling at that, but whatever. Yeah, shame, and shame. Then she realized that he was talking like he really believed that he used to be a sheriff in Texas and that they're going to go back and live in Texas. So he's got some grandiose fantasies happening. Yeah. He was obsessed with making money and building a life for them that was grand, even though Carol Ann just wanted his love and told him that all, you know, numerous times at the grown, grown age of 13. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I really, just she to, just she just wanted what her mom had with Marion. I just want your limp. That out. I'm sorry. I can't. I want to keep it in. I'm gonna keep it in. I just want your limp dick and your bowed legs. He's the perpetrator. We can make fun of him. I'm just picturing such an unsightly image in my head of this, a James like, Dean wannabe short, with yes. that's not tall enough, bowed legs, a limp not dick, smooth because his. I haven't seen it's him yet, awful. so I need to look him up. But it's awful. <laughs> she okay. and she just felt bad anyway, for him, yeah. as you can see why. <laughs> but so Charles Charles quit his job at the Union newspaper, which did not make Marion Bartlett any happier. He's like, great now. Now this, he's jobless. Yep, and this MFR is going to be at my house all the time because now he doesn't have a job to get oh, to. And and Marion Marion right? Yeah, Marion sounds like a stand-up guy so he yeah. probably is wanting 
to see the good qualities. Yes, and the qualities that a dad wants to see uh-huh. in somebody that's pursuing their daughter. That's the Ooh. impression I get. So yep. now he's got the scrub yeah. that's going to be hanging out all the time. Exactly. I love the word scrub. <laughs> Me too. We do. Good, good use I of the I use word. it a lot. So she's, you know, that's that's where Marion's at because he's an appropriate father. The, but the problem is, is that Carol Ann was happy. She went to school and with her, still, she's she's going to school. She's doing well in school. She's got friends. She comes home and helps her mother with Betty Jean until it's time to go to her babysitting job. She's helping plan for the arrival of her new what they thought was going to be a niece, but turns out to be a boy oh. that her sister has. And life is really good. So Carol Ann is in eighth grade at Whittier Junior High School, and Charles is working now with his older brother Rodney as a garbage collector. So that's where he goes next. So he's Quits literally the a garbage person. Now he's a garbage person. Literally. Gotcha. And thank the good Lord for all of our garbage uh, men yeah. and women out there, because we need you. But, Absolutely. But not this dude. And also, he didn't do good at this job because he, like, accosted people people on his route <laughs> so he's not, not a good cool. he literally really is a garbage person yeah so grateful for garbage pickup i can't afford it personally but it's, i it wish is, i could <laughs> I it really is lovely do. <laughs> but what she would do is she would walk to the bus stop with her friend and neighbor bonnie gardner so bonnie the routine would be bonnie would come knock on the door the two would leave together go to the bus stop take the bus to school Come home. Now, what Charles starts doing is parking his car outside of the school, and Carol would drive it home. Yeah. Okay. His dad, Charles's dad, Guy, did not like this. He's like, hey, I helped you co-sign for $150 for the loan for that truck, and I don't like that you're letting this, your 13-year-old girlfriend drive it home from school. Reasonable. Yes. Now, Carol, on the other hand, thought she was hot shit. Oh, I bet. Because she's driving her boyfriend's car behind the school bus that her very classmates are on. So she's She's big time. Look at me now. Yeah. She is big time. One afternoon, she pulled out of a parking space in front of an oncoming car because, Uh you know, no driver's training. And the car hit her and forced her to hit another car. Oh, yikes. So she was court ordered by a judge to write an essay about the hazards of underage driving. That was her punishment? Yes, that was her punishment. That's what the judge decided. Okay, well, that's okay. punishment. Yep, she's 13. Sentence, yeah, okay. However, Charles was thrown out of his house. Oh, wow. Yeah, guy was like, told you so, and now you're out. Listen, that limp dick, I told you not to do that. <laughs> you didn't listen, now here's your consequence. Wow, so he's kicked out completely. Yeah. and he moves into the tenement house with Barb and Bob Von Busch. Oh, they've they've always got his back, it yeah. seems. Yeah. Well, Bob's his best friend. Yeah. And he did steal Barb from him. Yeah, he probably so. felt like he owed, yeah. you know, somewhat. Carol Ann was a little bit offended that Guy was upset at her when it had been Charles insisting that she drive his car home from school. The reason Charles insisted that she drive his car home from school is because he didn't really like her on the bus with other boys. Ah, and it starts. Yes. And this is where Carl start. Carl, I wrote it in my Wait, notes. Wait, who's There's Carl? No Carl. <laughs> there is plot twist. No Carl, but she is Carl in several of my notes. <laughs> oh fuck! <sighs> so this is when Carol starts to see changes in Charles. He becomes very jealous, possessive, 
questioning if she's talking to other boys in class. He wanted her to quit her babysitting job so that they could spend more time together. Insisted. Oh, oh yeah. Insisted that he could take care of her and that she didn't need to work. You don't need to make your own money. I'll take care of you. Oh, yeah. Now, she didn't. She did not do any of those things. Okay, so she kept going She did. On. Yes, yep. Kept on with her life with her family and her babysitting job. One day, he brought her a paper to sign, and it was a savings account that he had opened with both of their names, saying if he got killed in one of his gang fights, you know, with the leather the, jackets. The leather, yeah, the leather gang. the jean jackets. Um, then he wanted her to have his money. Oh. Mm-hmm. So... Carol didn't really like the changes in Charles, but now... So I'll take your money. Right. If you die in a gang sure, fight, I'll sure. take it. Because the chances are pretty high. You get into them a lot. You never know. Those jean jacket boys are ruffians. What The story in the book is actually really funny how they'd like yell obscenities at each other across the um, road from one another, but then they'd end up like at the same movie theater and ice cream shop later that night. Oh, yeah. And, like, eating. I'm like, oh, my gosh, is this grease? What's it happening? Do- that, it has a grease feel. It does, yes. The problem is, is that Charles is now literally living in the same tenement building as her sister and her sister's husband, Barb and Bob Van Bush. <laughs> The Count. The Counts. Mm-hmm. She's visiting with her sister. Charlie's there. He'd turn up. She can't get away from him. Yeah. He's got a radar for where she's at. And he and wants he's to there. be mashed into her DNA. Yep. Of course. Yes. So that's where, that is where Carol and Charles are at. Carol's like, I'm real getting tired of you. She's starting to. I don't know why I said it like that. It's okay. I'm real getting tired <laughs> We're gonna go of with you. it. But no, it sounds like she is starting to see some things. She is. Not loving it, yep. but he's he's clinging. But yeah. He's and, a Klingon. In small town, and he's freaking everywhere. Mm-hmm. We're going to go to the morning of December 2nd, 1957. 21-year-old George Culvert, who was an expecting father and recently discharged from the Navy. Well, he was found dead on a gravel road in Lincoln. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. And he was killed by a shotgun wound to the back of the head. He was a night clerk at the Crest Service Station, which he had only started about a month prior. The police discovered the intention of the murder was robbery because sometime between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m., someone came into the service station, robbed the place, and then drove George to the gravel road and dumped his body. Approximately $160 was missing from the till and about $66 from Culvert or George Culvert himself. The same morning that Lincoln, Nebraska was learning of this crime, Charles Starkweather was shopping at the local thrift store, which he typically shops at. But this time he was not looking at tags and he spent nearly $10 instead of the usual two. Interesting. And he, mm-hmm, and he bought a majority of a wardrobe. Like he bought a lot. Treating himself. Mm-hmm. He paid in all change and the shop owner did not know his name but recognized him as a regular customer and that he was acting different. Because she's like, oh, yeah, that bow-legged short redhead with the limp dick. He was in <laughs> that here. That guy. That guy. <laughs> he bought a bunch of shit. Yeah. Like, he's usually in here wheeling and dealing with me over a pair of streaky whitey tighties. And today he's like, I'm getting this. Yeah. I'm getting today this he's not even and... looking at t- He's popping tags. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> she noticed the change in him. It still wasn't enough to make his dick hard, but she noticed <laughs> but she there noticed. was a change. Yeah. <laughs> it was more of a pep in a step in his step. After learning of the murder and robbery, 
The shop owner actually called the police to report the red-haired man that's about 5'6 that paid in all change and was acting off. Because she's like, he never spends this much money. Yeah. And it was an all change, and that's weird. And that's and, odd, mm-hmm. yes. The next day, he actually pays his landlady all the back rent that he owns. Hmm. Something yeah. suspicious here. Like, why are you spending that money right away when... Fucking dumbass. You know. Right. Starkweather had also decided to paint his blue truck black and paint the interior red. When his friends inquired about the sudden change, he told them that some drunks had spray painted it a bunch of different colors. Like, I gotta fix their their polka he'll, dot he'll job. Have that, yeah. Yeah. He even went and visited his parents, which was something that he had not done since getting kicked out over the whole letting Carol Ann drive his car thing. He informed his mother that he had been having bad headaches ever since he was involved in a workplace accident at the Western Union newspaper, and now his eyes were bothering him too. And his dad, being ever so helpful, was like, here's some aspirin for your headaches. Still not mentioning like, yeah, I see death nightly. Oh, so he's still not talking (laughs) about that? No, he's not telling anybody that, but they like come, it comes with the headaches. Oh, so so he said. Talk, he told them he's getting the headaches, headaches but he's not like I see having, corpses around me. Right, having vision problems. People are dead at my feet. Yeah, no. Christmas came and went, and Carol Ann. So this is still you know 1957. Carol Ann was thrilled that Marion had bought her mother Velda a washing machine. Everyone was so excited, a real washing machine. Oh, of course, nice. Carol Ann's like, no, I won't be busting my ass over buckets anymore yeah, either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Barb welcomed a baby boy, not a girl as they had hoped, on December 30th. And his name was little Bobby Von Bush. Oh, little Bobby. Bobby. A little Bobby. Now, Carol at this point was starting to get unnerved by Charles. He he is constantly talking of moving back to Texas to go back to work as a sheriff. Something that he never did, but now all of a sudden is talking like it's not fantasy anymore like he's believing he really did this and wants to go back and is going to take carol ann with him his questioning of carol after school was also becoming bothersome to her aside from him from her ensuring like i'm not talking to any other boys and he would tell you know you're lying i know you are and he would just continue to carry on about how they need to get married and move Now, Carol's like, no, this is not what I want to do. She had aspirations to become a nurse, and she knew that she needed to graduate high school and then go on to nursing school to make this happen. And getting married and popping out bow-legged babies is not how she's going to be able to chase her dreams. She did, and she was sticking to them. She asked Charlie if they could slow down, but Charlie wasn't about to slow down. He's like, uh, no. Yep, because Carol Ann was the only thing in the world that he loved. He is obsessed with her. Charlie would later recall that as long as he could love Carol Ann and hate the rest of the world, then he was happy. He could not carry on if he couldn't hate. He had a severe hate for the world. And Carol Ann is the only person that he loves, and he talks about it in depth. Oh, wow. About how, like, if he couldn't hate, then he just, he wasn't right. Like, things didn't feel right to him without hating. Wow, that's pretty. It pretty was really intense. Yes, really strong. So if he woke up and is like, mm, "I'm not feeling hateful enough. Something's off." Yes, I have I, to go pick a fight. Ah, so that I can feel that hate. Now, Carol Ann had loved Charlie from the get go, but she also felt sorry for him. He talked all the time about the money that he was going to make, and she knew that wasn't going to happen. She's like, she's, okay. Right. She's down to earth and yeah. realistic. Plus, she's been through some shit. You I know? feel like she probably could have walked away or would have if he wouldn't have been so, like, 
like oh, she, on her. She tries. Oh. She does. We're okay. getting to it. Okay. <laughs> yep. I can already kind of sense like a, I'm not it's loving coming. this. Correct. Correct. Now, all of these talks of like how they're going to get married and how the, all the money is going to make. He did this all while throwing a knife against the wall. That was one of his favorite pastimes is to take a knife and throw it against the wall. Then take it back, throw it against the wall. How charming. Yes, and I'm going to guess he's not getting his security security deposit back. Probably not. <laughs> well, there's all kinds of holes in the wall. Then things got worse for Charlie when he was fired from the garbage truck company for being lazy and mouthing off to people on his truck oh, route. Charlie. Mm-hmm. So, you just had to get the garbage. You, had one you didn't even have to talk to him. Yeah, just you know? get their garbage But again, leave. he's got to show his hate. He's got to have that. He's got to be filled with hate. On Sunday evening, January 19th, 1958, Carol Ann was helping her mother in the kitchen while Charlie came over in a horrible mood. Now we're at 1958. Um, in 1957, Carol Ann, she was born July 30th, so she had just turned 14. She met Charlie Starkweather when she was 13, but now she's 14. And I just want, we're setting up to get into the issues that happen, and I just want you to know that she is 14. Okay. So Sunday evening, January 19th, she's helping her mom in the kitchen. Charlie comes over all pissed off. Carol was not in the mood to deal with Charlie's mood. Usually she would try to cheer him up and like she felt sorry for him. So she's just like, come on, you know, I mean, he's, he's a grumpy, hateful man. He's mm-hmm. 19 at this point in time. And he starts in talking to her about some boy in school. Oh boy. And, and wanting to date some boy in school. And she's like, uh, nope, that's not happening. I'm not talking to him. It's got to be getting old at this point. It is. Yep. And the argument got a little heated and they started snapping at one another. And Carol told him to get out, which he refused. Carol had had enough and told him to get out and to not come back. She was done. They were no longer together. Velda now intervenes and tells Charlie to leave because she doesn't want any trouble. I just picture, have you ever seen Sweet Home Alabama? You know, at the end when she's like breaking up with um, McDreamy there and her mom was like, now she said her piece. Yeah. Let's just get on. That's how I picture Velda is yep. just being like this sweet old, like, okay, Charlie. Now that's enough. Yep. Now you too. She said her piece. Now you just scurry on now. Mm-hmm. Now, Charlie, on his way out, Charlie says to Carol Ann, quote, were you serious about never seeing me anymore? End quote. And Carol Ann replies, yes. Now we move to Tuesday. That was Sunday, the 19th. Now it's Tuesday, January 21st, 1958. Carol Ann was doing her typical morning routine with her mom. Betty Jean and Carol Ann actually shared a bed once Barb got married and moved out. Betty Jean moved in to Carol's bed. Carol and Barb shared a bed. Barb gets married and moves out and is now sharing a bed with Bob Von Bush. So <laughs> so Betty Jean and Carol are sharing a bed. When they hear Velda get up for the day, Carol Ann grabs Betty Jean, plops her in the high chair, gets her a cup of milk while her mom reads the morning newspaper. Marion, the stepdad, joins them. And they're just having like normal. She's making toast. They're having a Sounds normal like a nice little family yeah, morning. breakfast routine. That song and dance, you know. Mm-hmm. Bonnie Gardner knocks on the door as always to pick Carol Ann up to go to the bus because you know to ride the bus to school. She kisses her mom and dad and her sister goodbye, and she walks to school. Now school carried on for the day, typically for Carol Ann as it would, with the bell ringing at three fifteen, and she and Bonnie take the bus home. She actually had borrowed a sweater from Bonnie that day. So when she got off the bus, she took the sweater off, gave it to Bonnie, walks up the steps to her house, and the family dog was barking at the front door. 
So she's like, all right. So she opens it, lets him in. And just as the screen door shuts behind her, then the big like storm door, the big front door slams shut behind her. And she whirls around and finds Charles Starkweather pointing a 22 rifle at her face. Oh, God. He orders her to sit down and then screams. And she doesn't. She's like, what? what are you doing? He then screams at her again when she didn't comply and tells him, she, she's like, okay, Charlie, calm down and put the silly gun away. So now he shoves her down onto the couch. Now, Carol Ann is angry and she gets right back up. Remember the little girl who got hit by the truck? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So she gets right back up. Well, then Starkweather slaps her across the face so hard that it knocks her down she begins to cry. So now he, she knows like this, is, this is something serious. He continues to hold her at gunpoint. He tells her that he took, that he took, he tells her that he took Marion, Velda, and Betty Jean hostage and that they're over to an old lady's house who used to let him work on his hot rods in her garage. And he just refers to her as the old lady. He tells her that as long as she does exactly what he says, then her family will remain alive. Because they're being watched and held by his gang, the Leather Jackets. If she gets out of line, one phone call, and they're dead, his gang will kill them. That's horrible, and she's so close to her family. Right, exactly. Carol Ann didn't believe any of it and believed that this was just another one of his crazy-ass stories, like the sheriff, right? She actually calls him crazy and a liar. Well, this makes him enraged. And he tells her that all it takes is one phone call and her entire family is dead and it will be her fault. He also told her she better never call him crazy again or he will kill her. So not only am I threatening your family, but now I'm going to kill I'm you. Threatening, I'm threatening you. So at this point, she knows that he's really lost it. She starts to look around the house and sees that like ever, nothing's out of the ordinary. Ordinary. But her family's not there. Mm-hmm. Like, she's never come home from school and not had her mom there before. Okay, so that's kind of... Right, and where's her baby sister? Yeah, yeah. So she's like, gets her, you know, senses about her and is just like, oh, holy Maybe shit. he's serious. Yeah, like, he really did take them. She also took note that the drapes were closed, which is not, you know, typical either. And she realizes that he's telling the truth and that her family really has been taken hostage by him. She convinces him to allow her to make a cup of coffee. She's like, okay, I think, can, can I just make some coffee? I just need to get my bearings about him, about, about me. What she's trying to do is buy time to get him to snack, snap out of his Looney Tune situation. Yeah. You know, she's just thinking like he'll come to his senses. And he tells her that the gang is watching the house, so she better not run. Like, you better not try to escape out the back door because... They're watching and they're going to get you. He demands that she go change her clothes. And she tried to refuse, but he told her that if she didn't change into a shirt and jeans, then he's going to do it for her. Now, remember, he's never seen her naked. Mm -hmm. Like, she's not experienced in these these things. Mm -hmm. So that's a mortifying thought for her. He followed her and watched her change anyway from her skirt and shirt that she had wore to school into her jeans, all while he was stroking his gun. Oh. And she was very, this, Yuck. like, she goes into detail about how uncomfortable this was for her. I, I mean, mean, first I'm of uncomfortable all, me too. Picturing like, this little man And you know his mouth his was hung, hanging open. Oh, yeah, like licking his lips. Oh, oh. it's not good. Legs bowed about. Right. Gun, the gun sitting where his penis should be, <laughs> all erect. 
That's he's using the guns to compensate for the yes. lack of penis. Yes. Um, he tells her, if you do everything I tell you, you can see them later. If you don't, they will get hurt and it'll be your fault. So Starkweather seemed to be going mad. He kept mumbling that if the police questioned him, he would just say that it was O'Brien that killed that culvert guy from the gas station. Remember uh-huh. George Colbert? Mm-hmm. Yes. So he's like lost it. He killed him on December 2nd and we're now, you know, towards the end of January and he is like losing it. He's snapped. He's repeating over and over again, just like talking to himself, just not, not necessarily Carol Ann in general, just, just talking, babbling to himself, saying that he had nothing to do with it. Oh, and wow. he's throwing his knife at the wall over and over and over again. It's almost like a time. psychosis. Yeah. I think so. Kind of. That's Kinda. what it reminds would, me yeah. of. And he turned the TV on and was just like, we're just going to sit here and watch TV while I hold you hostage and throw this knife, keep the gun in, in my hand, and babble on incessantly. So eventually it gets late and Carol Ann just falls asleep on the couch like that while Starkweather threw the knife against the wall and talked to himself. Well, then he lays down next to her, and she was not comfortable with this, and she told him to get off, but he wouldn't. So he's just forcing himself to lay next to her. Now we move to Wednesday, January 22nd. Carol Ann woke up to Bonnie Gardner knocking on the door, like she did every morning Mm -hmm. to walk to school. Charlie told her to get rid of her, or he would kill Bonnie. So her family's still gone. Her family is still being held hostage. Yep, her family's still gone. Okay, so he really did have He really did take the family. Okay. Charlie told, you know, was like, I'll kill, you know, I'm gonna kill Bonnie. So you better get rid of her. So Carol Ann was like, okay, she goes, she goes to the door and says, I'm sorry, but we don't, I'm not feeling good. I'm not going to school today. Bonnie's like, okay. Now, Carol Ann could not move in the house without Charles watching her. He told her when she could pee and he watched while she did it. Same thing for pooping. Oh. He watched everything. Poor Carol Ann. I know. It reminds me of Shelly. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly, I thought the same thing. And she did completely as he instructed. He's got a gun on her. He's got her family's life in his hands. He told her, she kept asking about her family, like, just let them go, or just where are they? Just all of these things. He's like, listen, it, you better stop asking about your family. You're going to stop asking about your family, or I'm going to kill you. And it was just, that's how they lived. Like, I will tell you when you can pee. I'm going to watch you do this. And she did say, like, in the beginning, it was really, really difficult to be able to use the restroom in front of him. But then you just become numb to it. Just sure. what are you going to do? Your body's just going to... Like, I gotta go. Yeah. Later that same day, this Wednesday, Charles' brother Rodney comes to the door looking for Charlie because he had Rodney's rifle and Rodney needed it. He's like, hey, Charles borrowed my rifle and I need it back. She's like, uh, Charlie's not here. Later, Rodney recalls that conversation with Carol Ann thinking that she looked sick. She didn't look right. Next, after Rodney leaves, Starkweather ties Carol Ann up really tight. He cut up her mom's dish rags and used them to tie up her feet, ankles, um, I mean her ankles, her legs, and her arms, and puts her on the on her side on the couch and leaves. Now she tried like hell to get loose, but she couldn't because everything was bound. She got really disheveled and sweaty in the process. So when he returned, which it turns out what he was doing was giving his brother Rodney the rifle back so he wouldn't come not looking for it anymore. But when he returns, he knows that she was trying to get away. 
because oh, she's a tell. sweaty mess. Yeah. Yeah. So he shook her up real good. That's what the book said. I don't know if it means anything more. It just said that he shook her up real good and said, if you try to do that again, I'm going to make the phone call that will kill your parents, your family. For Carol, the next days blurred into one another. She only knew what day of the week it was from what was on the television. Charles had went in, went to a store near the house and bought all of her favorite junk food that she was rarely allowed to have, but she couldn't eat. I mean, she's sick with worry for her yeah. family, and she's not looking good. People can, And that's the problem. People keep coming to the door. She keeps telling them that the family has the flu, and she looks like she has the flu because she's not eating, she's not sleeping, and she's scared to death. Yeah. Uh, Marion's boss even comes to see why he hadn't shown up for work. The neighbor that always came for eggs came. There are several people that come to the door. She went to get the mail each day, but Charles was like, I'm watching you from the window, and if you run, I'm going to shoot you. And my gang is watching you. They're going to get you. You're not going to get away. But he would have her get the mail so that the mail person wasn't suspicious of the fact that she's not getting the mail, that they're not getting the mail. He always had either a knife or he had even stolen her mom's little pistol that was in the house. He kept that in his hands at all times. He would bound and gag her if he left the house for something. On January, Saturday, January 25th, remember this all started on Tuesday. So now this is Saturday, January 25th. She was woken up to Starkweather pointing her dad's 410 shotgun at her that he had sawed off because it would shoot better. And that day, to Carol Ann's horror, she hears a car outside and sees her sister, Barb, husband, Bob, and their infant son, Bobby, Von Bush, walking up the walk. Bob saw the shades were drawn and had told the taxi driver to wait because he's like, I don't know. I don't think they're home. Mm-hmm. So just wait a second. Starkweather says, get rid of them or I'll shoot them. And he's got his gun in his hand saying this. So Carol Ann opens the large door and threw the screen door open like in a rush shouting really hastily go away go away barb don't come any closer everyone is sick with the flu go away if you know what's good for you or mother will get hurt okay barb knew that tone was not good that's not her sister's and she's like bob take the baby back to the cab and she's like i want to see mom carol ann was furious and turned to bob or turned to barb and said you don't want your baby to catch the flu, do you? Then go away now. Go away now if you know what's good for you. So she's panicked. She's She yeah. knows he is pointing the gun through the door at her. And what that she's got to get rid of her family. family. Yep. So Barb walks to the cab and Starkweather is telling Carol Ann that she needs to go out there and smooth things over so that no one's suspicious because she's really fucked this up. You have just made them think that something really bad is going on. You need to get out there and smooth things over. I'm watching you and the gang is watching you. So Carol Ann meets Barb at the taxi and is crying saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that I'm being so cranky, but but I just have to. So just leave or mother will get hurt. Carol didn't look right to them. She looked run down. Her hair was disheveled. He knew, Bob knew that something wasn't right in that house. So he meets up with Rodney Starkweather, okay, the brother, and they walk down to the police station to ask the police to search the house, telling them of the weirdness and concerns because this is not Carol Ann. Uh The police go to the house. Starkweather does his routine, standing behind the big door that no one can see him, pointing the gun, saying, you better get rid of him. Carol tells the police the flu story and then explains that the only reason Bob would say anything is wrong is because he likes to start trouble and he doesn't like the family. Oh, my goodness. 
Now, Carol Ann felt terrible saying bad things about Bob, but hoped that the police would tell Bob, which would be a further red flag to the family because she adored Bob and had never said anything against him. And they're all a very close family, right? Like this has got to be a red flag if the police tell him I'm talking trash about him, making up this blatant lie. Right. So Bob and Rodney actually did a stakeout to watch the police go and talk and to like make sure that they went into the, you know, went to the house. When the police then informed Bob what Carol had said, he went right back up to the porch and demanded to be let in. Now, Carol was panicked and said, please stop trying to get in. My mother's life will be in your hands if you do. Bob noticed that the big door was moving without Carol touching it. Oh, so he's mm-hmm. he's catching on. Yes, he knows something is not right. And of course, it was moving because Starkweather had the gun pointed at her. They, they know something's wrong. My gosh, poor Carol Ann. Now, what happens next is that Starkweather ties her up and leaves. Then he calls Bob and Rodney and tells them not to go over to the Bartlett's house because remember her ma- Marion's last name is Bartlett. So now Velda's last name is Bartlett. Mm-hmm. And Betty Jean is their biological child. So she's Betty Jean Bartlett as well. That becomes important in a minute. Don't go over to the Bartlett's house because they were all sick with the flu and he was going to go out and get them groceries, but he'd need a ride back from the store. So basically he's like making himself visible. Yeah. Like, hey, I've been at the house. They're really sick. I'm going to go get them some groceries, help a guy out, and help drive me home from the grocery store. So they go to meet Charles where he said that he would be, and he wasn't there, and the cashier had not seen them, seen him either. Bob was like, the cops aren't helping, because the cops had actually told Bob just to mind his own business. Really? So they didn't Mm -hmm. even feel the need to go in, check on the family, nothing? No. So the cops aren't, Bob knows cops aren't helping and Charlie's nowhere to be found, but he doesn't, Charlie has now removed himself from the house. So he's like not suspect, he's like, I don't think Charlie has anything to do with it. But he's like, I don't, okay, I don't really know what to do. Like what what am I supposed to do at this point in time? That same night, so it's Saturday night, at this point in time, Bob and Barbara are like at their house just trying to figure out what they should do you know should we kind of wait this out and see do they really have the flu so they let it rest for the night and this is this night Starkweather tries to have sex with Carol Ann oh I hate to say it but I was wondering like if this was going to become a a part of it it does for a sec he was telling her how much he loved her and that she was going to be with him Carol Ann was mortified because she was menstruating oh no Mm -hmm. But that did not seem to deter him, which she's a 14-year-old girl. You know she hasn't been menstruating for too long. And then to have this man try to mm -hmm, pulling down her her underwear, horrible, taking taking away her sanitary pad, just how mortifying. So violating. Mm -hmm. What he does is he attempts to penetrate her and becomes frustrated and forced her to turn over. Now Carol Ann is doesn't know what he's trying to do. She's never done this. Yeah. She's not sure what's going on. Now, he just keeps rubbing himself on her backside until finally giving up and getting dressed, and he was really angry. So at this time, she's only 14, so she doesn't realize that what he was frustrated about was that he couldn't get an erection. I thought that's where it was going. Yes. So now the next day is Sunday, January 26th, 1958. And you may be wondering, Charnel, you sicko, why did you even tell me any of that information? I did because I wanted to give another side of the media story about what a heartlet, heartlet she was. Can you imagine if that had happened 
And then you see what the media is saying about you. Oh, no. When you were violated. No. Right. Forced. I mean, and, almost because yep. he couldn't do yep. it. But and then to see that. I mean, yep. oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's horrible. Then to see people say that you are nothing but a but a harlot because you were having pre, supposedly having premarital sex. And what we'll find out later is that Starkweather lies significantly about their sexual relationship because he doesn't want anyone knowing he's impotent. So he goes, as he does with all of his stories, above and beyond. Well, everyone knows now. That's right. Well, I'm here to tell you. <laughs> He's dead now, but he couldn't get it up. The world needs to know. That's right. Put it on his headstone. <laughs> Limp dicks dark weather. <laughs> it has, uh, has a ring to it. It does. The next day is Sunday, January 26th, 1958, and Charles' sister, Levita, has attempted to gain entry to the house twice, once in the morning and once in the evening. Carol Ann is whispering to her that Charlie is going to rob a bank with his gang because that is what he's, like, telling her that they're going to do. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're going to rob a bank and run away and live happily ever after. And that he's holding her family hostage. But Levita really couldn't hear her through the door and was frustrated, like, Speak up, girl. What are you saying? And it's cold. It's January. So she gets frustrated that she can't get into the house and she leaves. So now Starkweather is tired of people trying to come in and makes Carol Ann write a note and stick it on the door. So she does. And she writes this. Stay away. Everyone is sick with the flu. Miss Bartlett. Now, Carol Ann thinks for sure people will know something is wrong because the only Miss Bartlett in the house was Betty Jean, who's three years old, and cannot write. Because if it was her mother, she would have wrote Mrs. Bartlett. Mrs., yeah. And that was a bigger deal back in the 50s than it is today. The Miss and the Mrs. Sure. You called each other by the appropriate name. Now it's Monday, January 27th, and Bonnie Gardner comes over to pick Carol Ann up once again. She gave her her school books to be turned in because it was the end of the semester and they needed turned in and was like, yeah, we're all still really sick. And, and Bonnie recalled she looked awful. It was so believable that she was sick because she looked, she was sick. It was just a different type of sick. Now, at this point, Grandma Patsy, she'd had about enough of the family missing the family meal over the weekend that they always had together. She had never went this long without seeing her daughter Velda before, and she wasn't having it. She arrives at 8.30 a.m., saw Carol Ann standing in a house coat in the dining room. So she called out to her, and Carol Ann replied, go away, Grandma, go home. Granny, oh, Granny, go away. Mama's life is in danger if you don't go away. Starkweather, of course, had the gun behind the door pointed at her. I'm so over him. Me too. And this damn gun yeah. that he's substituting <laughs> yeah. for an erection. Yeah. Now, Carol Ann put her left hand over her mouth and was trying to point nonchalantly at Starkweather, but Patsy didn't see it. Oh, no. Um, Come on, Grandma Patsy. I know. So Grandma Patsy yells, Velda, if you can't come to the door, at least come where I can see you. Now, Velda didn't come, and Patsy noticed she also didn't hear little Betty Jean either. So she tells them, I'm getting a search warrant, and I'm going to be back. Get Get it, it done. Come on, Patsy. As soon as she left, Starkweather told her to get dressed because they were getting the hell out of there. She put her pants... Put on her black pants, blue coat, white shoes, and red scarf. The two walk not far to Barbara Griggs' house, where his truck was at. That's where Starkweather had been keeping his truck. He goes inside to get the keys. Now, he warned her if she said anything, 
that he would kill her and her family. She's acting, they, they I mean, they can tell that she's not acting right. Neither one of them are acting right, but he's just going in the house real quick to get his keys. Mm-hmm. The truck had a flat, so she had to go back in by herself and ask for a screwdriver. And he warned her once again, I'm watching, you don't tell them anything, or I will kill your family. They changed the tire, they got gas at the Crest service station, the same place that Starkweather had robbed and murdered the man a month before. Mm-hmm. He bought gas, a map of Nebraska, and the neighboring states, and they took off. He told her that he was taking her to the old lady's house where her family was being kept. So she's like, okay, I'm going to keep my shit together because he's taking me to my family. Yeah. This place was actually, I want to give her a name, the South Southworth's home. That was the old lady that was on his garbage route who actually rented, let Starkweather rent a little space in their garage to work on his hot rods. She's just a nice old lady. Okay. When they arrive, he told her to stay in the car or her family that was inside the garage would be shot. And he did take the guns with him, I want to point out. So he still had Marion's sawed-off 410 shotgun, her mom's pistol, okay, and knives. Now, Carol Ann is bawling because she's so close to her family, but she can't do anything. This is the first time in her life that she's alone, like really, really alone. And she's forced to make choices that she's unsure of because she is trying to save her family's life. Starkweather came back out and with some tires and they and he threw them like in the backseat of the car and they head to Dale's Champion service station. He said he wanted to get the transmission checked and he made Carol Ann stay in the car, even while it was lifted up on the hoist. So oh my this car is getting serviced. They're lifting it up on the hoist. She's just sitting there. And she's just sitting there. Now, this was strange to the owner and the mechanics. They noticed that Starkweather was acting funny. They thought that he was fixing to rob them. So they kind of stayed on high alert. They're like, it's weird that she's staying in the car. Yeah, this is all awkward. Mm-hmm. Now, at this time, she's alone. So Carol Ann wrote a note on a scrap piece of paper that said, help police don't ignore. She rolled down the window on the truck a little bit and was going to drop it to the ground below while she's on the hoist, while the car is up on the hoist. But the last second she got scared. She couldn't see where Starkweather was. And all she could think of is what if he can see? Yeah. Because he says that he's watching at all times. So if he sees the note drop Mm -hmm. or he's like right behind her. and Then when they're done here, he could just kill her and then have her family killed. So she puts the note in her pocket. Now, next, they head south on Highway 77, and she was told that they were meeting up at August Meyer's house with his gang to finalize plans for robbing the bank. They stopped at a full-service gas station. Remember those? Like I how do, they would, yeah. They would put your gas in for you. Those were the days. Yes. And he told the attendant to fill the tank, and just as he was going to clean the windshield, Starkweather stopped him and told him that the windows were clean. He heard the girl in the passenger passenger seat ask Starkweather what he wanted from inside. The attendant was like, "Yeah, she she said, "Do you, you know, what do you want from the inside?" And he tells her and then turns back to the attendant and was like, "Hey, do you guys sell any 32s meaning bullets?" And the attendant said, "No." So Starkweather gets a tire out of the back seat and tries filling it up with air, but then says just out loud, like randomly, huh, this might have a hole. So the attendant's like, oh, I can fill it up and test it. And if it does, I can fix it for you. No problem. So he's like, okay. And in the meantime, Starkweather goes into the other side of the gas station to get some more ammo. He gets some 22 ammo, 410 ammo, bought a few boxes of them. 
He buys a pair of work gloves, a map of Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska. Again, like how many maps of Nebraska does he need? Seriously. So while he was doing all that, Carol Ann was actually in the restaurant part of the station and ordered four hamburgers to go. A waitress named Juanita was cutting pies and noticed that the young girl was staring holes into her soul. That's how she described it as she cut the pies. She had one hand on the counter and one in the pocket of her coat. Carol was waiting for the waitress to get close enough so that she could pass her the the note note. that she had wrote. It took about 10 minutes to cook the hamburgers, and the whole time Juanita never came close enough for Carol to pass Uh, the note. Juanita! She's just cutting those pies. Step away from the pie. Then she was joined when when Juanita did come to give her the hamburgers. He was there. He walks up to the register to pay for them. It's not like he gave her any money. hate him. She was just sent in to order and told, I'm watching you. They finish their business at the counter, pay for the hamburgers, and leave. They did go to August Meyer's home, as Starkweather told Carol Ann that they were going to do. But they got stuck as they pulled into his driveway in the snow. Starkweather was pissed and told Carol Ann that he could kill the old man for not having his drive plowed. Uh, His driveway was about a half a mile long, and it was freezing out. So they walk up to the Meyer's home and inform him that they needed to use some of his horses to get the truck unstuck. Myers is like absolutely and he was walking them to the house to warm up when Starkweather lifted the shotgun and shot August Meyer in the back of the head what just right there in front of Carol Ann for no reason just because he's pissed because the dude's driveway wasn't plowed yep Carol yeah this dude that let him hunt on his property and he's gonna go help him get unstuck yep because he's a moron. With his horses. Going to go get his horses to yeah, get him unstuck. Like, oh, here, I'll help you. Mm-hmm. Carol was in shock. She was terrified. She couldn't believe what she just saw. Starkweather drug August Meyer's body to a nearby outbuilding and told Carol Ann to get the hat that had fallen off him and put it in there, too. Which she did. Like, sorry, I'm going to comply, too. I just watched a man shoot someone. You dare defy him? You know what I mean? Yeah. He commanded her to get in the house, and when she said that she didn't want to go in there, he told her if she didn't, that she would get it just like the old man. I hate to put this in here, too. He hit the mayor's had a dog that kept barking, and so he hit it with the barrel of the shotgun, and then he tried to shoot the dog as it ran away, but his gun got jammed. Oh, so the dog lived. Well, for a minute. But no. So the gun is jammed, just know that, but... Starkweather told he, uh, I don't think I bring it up again, but he actually ends up killing several dogs, like people that had dogs. If they had dogs with them. Oh, he, he is moving to the, the top dogs. of my list. I'm telling you, Limp Dick needs to be on his gravestone. Yeah. Starkweather told Carol that there was $500 somewhere in that house because he knew that the old lady from the place where her parents were, the Southworths, they had given August Mayer $500. And he knew that information. Like he somehow knew that the Southworths had paid August 500 bucks. So he's like, I want that $500. And he wanted to change of clothes. So they're searching for this $500 and he's wearing the old man's clothes. At this point, Carol did not put up a fight. She just told, she just did what she was told. They changed clothes clothes, and Carol Ann begged Charlie for them to leave. She kept telling him that she was afraid. She actually, because she's 14 and this is where her mindset is at, she was scared of August's ghost. 
Oh, she was afraid that like she was afraid of the fact that there was a dead body and that his yeah. ghost was going to come back and retaliate. Yeah, mm-hmm. because that's where her mindset it is because she's 14. Right. So he gathered more guns, found the dog and killed it. Oh, I hate him. I know. I can't say I wouldn't be scared of a ghost, too. Uh, right. At almost 40. I know. Right. Exactly. Like, there's got to be some bad juju there. Yeah, for sure. He kept telling her, keep your mouth shut, or your family will end up just like August. They worked uh, together to try to get the truck unstuck. As they were working, the neighbor, Howard um, Ganucci pulled up and offered help. He took notice that Starkweather kept the knife in his hand that he had. Odd. And ordered the girl into the truck when it was unstuck. Howard did pull away. Like, he helped them, and he was unharmed. He was probably like, I'm getting the heck out of yeah, here. he was unharmed. They didn't harm him. Starkweather drove around to another road that led to the mayor property from a different direction. And he got out, peeked inside the building that had that he had left August's, August's body at, then runs back into the vehicle and told Carol that someone had been there because the white towel that he had placed over August Mayer's face was on the floor next to him now. Now, Carol, being 14, was like, it's his ghost. It's the ghost. It's his yep. ghost. Yep. And she screamed at them, like, let's get the hell out of here. They did, and they go next to the Kruger's gas station, where the attendant takes note that there is a gun pointed to the left side of the passenger seat. There were more guns in the back and some tires. He took note of the license plate, thinking that these two were up to something, and decides to that he was going to report it to the police. I take note of that. The reason that I say that is because he does report that to the police, and like no one is looking at the fact that taking this information and realizing like this gun was pointed at this girl. Okay. Right? Okay. That's important. Now, meanwhile, Grandma Patsy's on a mission. She heads to the police station in Lincoln after being turned away and tells them that something is very, very wrong. She walks up to the desk of the sergeant who had just answered the phone. Now, earlier, Grandma Patsy was turned away and told to stay out of her adult daughter's family business. Okay? Mm -hmm. So now she's back and she's like, listen. Okay. something. It's been... Over a week. Yeah. Something is very wrong. The sergeant had just answered the phone as she walks up to his desk, and she hears him repeat back what he was hearing on the other line, and he's writing down the words, gun, pack of cigarettes, Charles Starkweather. Now, immediately, Grandma Patsy's like, uh, that's Carol Ann's boyfriend. Yeah. Like, what is going on? Well, it turns out that Guy Starkweather was asking police to pick his son up, who had recently left the Griggs home with his truck. Because the Griggs were like, something is up. So they, they, they were called getting Guy. the vibe, too. Mm-hmm. So Guy told the police that his daughter, Levita, had informed that him that she tried to get into the Bartlett house, but, but, but believes that Carol was telling him that Starkweather had a gun and was trying to rob a bank. So Levita is like, like, you know, these families are coming together, like reporting this stuff to the police. You know, something is going on. Now Starkweather and Carol Ann are in their truck on the run. Pick them up Mm -hmm. because he's going to rob a bank. So Officer Henson and Fisher drive Grandma Patsy to the Bartlett house at 10 a.m. Patsy uses her key to gain entry when there was no knock at the door and they frantically searched the home. Aside from the sawed off 410 barrel that was laying on top of the piano, nothing was out of the ordinary that she could tell, except Patsy didn't notice the barrel and neither did the officers. It was laying there because later on when they come back, it's, it is there. But the, I mean, the beds were made. There's no, you know, no sign of 
forced entry, distress, anything. So the police are like, see, we told you to stay out of your married daughter's business. Nothing's amiss here because they missed the sawed off barrel that's on the piano. Now Bob's done with his his garbage route for the day and he goes back to the police station to see if there's any news. You know, what's the status of the Bartlett house? Have you guys found my brother who ran off, you know, in his truck? Captain Harbaugh informs him that they think the family went on vacation and left their 14-year-old daughter and that she has her boyfriend over and doesn't want anyone to know. Oh my goodness. Now, Bob knew better than this and told the captain that there is no way Marion Bartlett would leave his car like that or his job. Because remember, his boss yeah, is looking for to him work. too. And he certainly isn't leaving a 14-year-old girl alone ever. With a guy that he didn't like. Yep. And Carol Ann goes everywhere Marion and Velda go because she's 14. Right. And I can't believe again, their reasoning the, here. Right. Oh, no. They're on vacation. Despite Without the, their vehicles? Yeah. Despite the family concerns. Yep. Numerous. Because, mm. you know, with as close as this family and community is, I'm pretty sure that Velda would have told her mom they were going on vacation. Yeah. yeah. But How the police are like, mm, that? vacation. Yep, they're on no vacation. No vehicles. It's fine. They just apparated someplace <laughs> yeah. else. It's, they didn't need their that's vehicles. That's the logical explanation right. here. They're from Hogwarts. It's fine. <laughs> they took their brooms and, and they went. So the family knows their own family and now is like, oh, my God. They were told, leave them alone and don't go stirring up trouble. So Patsy calls local hospitals looking for her daughter. And when she went to work for her waitressing shift that day, she told the cook to turn on the radio because she was expecting to hear some bad news. Patsy knows something is yeah, bad. definitely. When Bob returned home, Rodney was waiting for him. Because Rodney's like, we have got to do something. The two went back to the Bartlett home, and it's now 4 p.m. The front door is locked. They walk around to the back. There's a chicken coop in the back. Bob peeks into the coop and says, oh, my God. Bob Von Bush discovered the body of Marion Bartlett in the chicken coop, wrapped in rags and discarded quilts. He had died from a bullet wound to the head. There were also stab wounds, presumably from a knife. So he's already dead. Mm -hmm. Then Rodney and Bob discovered the bodies of Velda Bartlett and little Betty Jean Bartlett. I can't. In a shed on the property. Velda had died from a bullet wound to the head and with stab wounds as well. Betty Jean was not shot, but she had died from blunt force trauma to the head and was stabbed in the neck. Betty Jean was going to turn three on February 11 in mere days. I need this man to go away. Because remember, this is January 27th. I need him to, to not exist mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. Lincoln, Nebraska was shocked. The morning newspaper on January 28th of the Lincoln Star detailed the family was slain at their home and the persons of interest were Charles Starkweather and the family's 14-year-old daughter, oh, Carol Ann no. Fugate who were last seen on January 27th at Kruger's gas station. The Bartlett family had been killed on January 21st, the day Carol Ann came home from school to be held at gunpoint by Starkweather. But they weren't discovered until the 27th. So they were already dead, and he was just playing this card to get her... The whole time. Oh my gosh, I hate him. The Lincoln Star also suggested that the murder of the Bartlett family could be in connection with the Crest Station murder of Robert Culver, who at this time time his case was still unsolved from the month prior. And this is where I'm going to leave you for episode one. You've left me 
I'm the worst. Dead inside. I literally am the worst. My soul is is gone now. But you don't have to wait long. It's Thursday. If you're a Patreon, you get to just skip to the next episode because our Patreons get them right away and get part twos right away. But if you're not a Patreon and you don't become one, you just have to wait till Sunday. That's not long. Thursday to Sunday. That's okay. No big deal. It's doable. Tune in on Sunday for the conclusion of this story. Until Sunday, guys. Will you hold Enjoy me your day. while I, I cry here, before the next time? Yes. <laughs> come here, my baby. Come into my arms. Mind you, Charnel's like 90 pounds, and I am not. <laughs> but she's a strong one. I'm going to say. She is strong. I, I, I'm strong she enough. She can come still on. hold me. Get over here, baby. <laughs> All right, guys. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>